Hey everyone, welcome to Intersecting Ideas. My name is Mike Parks. I am your host, and this is a podcast just dedicated to examining life and culture and just, you know, hang talking to our friends and seeing what they're a specialist in, what interests them, and what is going on around our world. And today I am joined by my, of course, my co-host here, Wes Handy. What, what? Maximize the chill. <laughs> the man. <laughs> and uh, we are also joined, we got a super, uh, really special guest, Alexander Andrea Sados. Oh, perf- perfect pronunciation. Good what? to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard the last name pronounced enough. It's kind of like solidified in my mind now. <laughs> Good, keep it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so welcome to the show, Alex. Um, you know, for our listeners, why don't you uh, go ahead and give, give a little background about yourself. You know, what do you like? What would what, what, you study? You know, what intrigues you? So uh, I, uh, I'm i here because me and Mike share the same grad program at St. John's. And uh, we're there because we love the great books, right? You know, it's what they're yep. called, but it's not uh, trite, I think, to use that term. Uh, my background is uh, anthropology, uh, cultural anthropology. That was my undergraduate and focused on religion and language. Uh, I've always loved religion, language, and philosophy. Um, after undergrad, though, I didn't think I could really find any academic institution that could really teach that the way I wanted. So I really just studied amateurly, or I think it was pretty good, but I studied by myself uh, up until this point, basically, when I started uh, St. John's this past fall of 2020. So. Yeah, I basically am at St. John's to, uh, you know, professionalize what I've been doing in an amateur fashion. And uh, I've been reading, you know, even more books than I thought I would encounter. And uh, it's been a great journey. And yeah, glad to uh, be on the discussion. I always wanted to be in a podcast. Here (laughs) I am. Dreams coming true. Passion and career, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's (laughs) great. I was going to say, that's great because, uh, you know, I've kicked around the idea of, having one and doing this exact thing for years and it just i just thought eh, now seems like a good time so i mean having you at the background of anthropology and looking at culture um is going to be you know that that's going to be a great conversation today i think and today the conversation will be around you know we're going to center around memes and kind of like the the culture we live in uh, this clickbait culture and things like that so with that, let's let's just throw it out there. You know, let's start on the uh, let's start on the positive side. You know, when I look at things, I like to examine things from all angles, and I don't want to be overly pessimistic, overly optimistic. I just want to look at it from all angles. So, what are some good memes out there? What are some benefits of them? Go for it, Wes. The benefits of the memes are oh, Wes, you got some. Oh no no no, oh, no no no! Go ahead. Go ahead. I, go ahead. I, Actually, I, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, good. I mean, there's. The memes are like by nature, you know, so anonymous and they're just a eternal flood of memes happening. I think what's good about them is just the the concision of information that they present. And that's what's really good about them is the uh, that super direct, super short, meaningful picture that they give you. You know, that's how they work. That's good. Wes, I see it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I have a 
just in general, I have a very negative disposition towards memes. So I'll, I'll probably have, I have a lot more to co- contribute on that side of it. Um, but maybe that's uh, an error on my part. I mean, I, de- I definitely think there's, you know, ability, you know, I, the one, the, the memes I like anyway <laughs> are ones that are funny without, you know, making, uh, I, I mean, I really, I mean, well, I'm going to use my negative term here um, without dehumanizing people. So I, I think the the ones that are, um, you know, make you laugh and make you think twice about something. Yeah, they, they could be helpful. You know, they could just kind of give you a, and maybe, and see again, see, maybe I'm, I got a blind spot there, you know, because, you know, Alex, you bring a good point where you could, you know, it could be a very positive, con- concise presentation of an idea, you know, but yeah. yeah I, 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 I think uh, Alex actually hit, you, you actually nailed what I was thinking is that memes by nature are reductionistic. So, you know, there, there's like, I keep say like bumper sticker theology, you know, or like something communicated very precisely. And I think sometimes memes or even like a, uh, like a gift, like, you know, if you're, if you're texting somebody like the written word, an explanation point only contains so much information, but if I'm texting you and I shoot it and I'm excited and I send, you know, the kid pumping his hands in the air back to you, you're going to know, it's going to probably communicate something a little more to you than just an explanation point in all capital letters. Like you're going to think, oh, wow, he's really, you know, he's excited about this. So I think that, you know, even like memes or GIFs or, or even, uh, you know, things of that in that sphere could be good communicate. I like the ones that are like, I like the ones say Italians, you know, Italians be like, or, or little, the Spanish dude on a skateboard drinking his juice, you know, <laughs> it's a funny ones in the background. Uh, those are, those are also pretty good. Or the Bernie and Mittens. I mean, there's a bunch of bunch of good ones. So let's now let's flip it around. What about now? Wes is Wes is probably chomping now. Like, what about the negative <laughs> side of memes? <laughs> what are some negatives that are being impacted in our culture, and when we gobble down this this information? Wes, are you taking that one? Yeah, well, I was I was I was hesitant just to jump in real quick, but yeah, I'm at, I'm at, I tend to think. Uh, you know, some of the dangers of memes, right, is, uh, I mean, you mentioned the Bernie one, the Bernie one, um, it, there's, there's actually, you know, from what I understand is he actually, you know, used that meme to raise some money and give money to charity, right? Um, it was hilarious, he united us culturally, right? We have this common, you know, experience about him, at least for those that have been involved in the digital world with that. But at the same time, it, it kind of took over, Right. Kind of the inauguration. Right. It kind of took over something that was bigger than that, you know, and but besides that, you often end up seeing memes of that, you know, like, you know, someone felt like, I mean, I guess they were trying to be funny. Right. Maybe it was towards the end of the whole thing. You see he's been eaten by a, a polar bear or whatever. Right. You know, the, <laughs> the meme's dead now or something, you know, but it's like at the same time, you just like took a person's image and had them be eaten by a polar bear. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you've, you've taken this person and reduced them right to, to meet, you know? So, you know, that's, that's the, that's the thing I see, especially with memes, that involve real people, right? In real circumstances. Like this difference for, I think, when people use movies or contrived things or stock images or whatever. But if you're using a real person and, and, and memifying something about their life, you know, or something real like that, as you, you know, a big celebrity like Bernie can handle it. He's an old, it's not going to affect him. He's, he doesn't care. He's, you know, he, he's, he's making an impact doing what he's doing, you know, but, 
for other people, maybe an anonymous person or, or someone who, with, you know, you know, you can't live that down, right? In some places, right? So like that's, a, who, that's who you are, you know? Almost on like a personal, so you're, you're referring more like a personal relational type, almost in an attack sense, you're saying. Yeah, but even if it was, a, even if it was used positively, like it's, it's like, I, I just don't know, man. I, I just feel like um, there's a tendency to dehumanize people, right? Mm-hmm. And, but again, maybe I'm overly negative with that. Well, I feel like uh, I feel like the um, the tendency to dehumanize is part and parcel with uh, media in general. Even back to the first written words, you know, um, the ability to attack a person instead of just being able to build them up is uh, something that's possible through um, media, whether it's just, you know, letters or we go full-blown audio-visual, uh, which is even more dangerous, uh, more complex, uh, more po- more possible things. So the ability to go to war through memes is something that I think is a huge issue right now, but that ties into the that ties into so much about how the history of ideas have advanced through war, whether different writers attacking each other in their books or, uh, you know, legal cases being presented, you know, being disputed through words and terminologies, newspapers, um, tabloids, everything like that. It's a, it's a form of warfare. And I feel like that doesn't get recognized enough. I think maybe it is nowadays. Maybe people are really starting to realize, um, that about words it seems almost undeniable at this point let me jump in here so i i think my biggest my biggest kind of concern with me with kind of our meme culture is because they are reductionistic by nature i think that we are we try to the memes are trying to encapsulate big ideas in these small little nuggets and if it's truth it could become you know it could be great but Hard concepts take more than 10 words to unpack. And the problem I see is in the political realm, there's, there's sound bites in the political realm that are almost mudslinging. And then you really see this, I think, in the religious world, religious texts or things like that. I mean, how many times would you take, would you even take like a, a book like I don't know, Harry Potter and flip to the middle and just read a text out of context? you wouldn't know what it was talking about. And I feel like that's what memes sometimes the negative side is you don't really communicate. It can become a bad form of communication and people just click and send without research. Let's also talk about how about the clickbait culture that we have right now? I mean, that kind of ties into it, right? Yeah. Misrelated, right? Yeah, um, very much so. Because oftentimes an image or a meme, you know, becomes kind of a trigger, right? To, Oh, to tie together with a headline, right? You know, trigger to get something passed around, whether or not people ever actually read anything that an article has to say that they're, that they're clicking on. You know, if you think about, I mean, I know it because we were not to jump completely off of memes for a second, because I was thinking like, you know, one of the big recent controversies is what, you know, what to do with Dr. Seuss, right? And some of his, um, you know, older writings where he was, mm-hmm very much um you know anti-asian but you know and i read a recent you know bbc article that gave a, a great amount of context to that and even you know revealed a lot of his own 
he realized later in life he was wrong and he wrote some other things to kind of correct that. And I think he'd be fine with some of his older stuff being taken out of circulation. But it's, you know, he got his fame by making political cartoons, right? And speaking of war, and particularly in World War II, right? I mean, he was a very strong advocate using the using political cartoons, satire, which, you know, memes are in that same category, I think, in, you know, in that realm, right? They can have that function. And, you know, but a political cartoon usually came in the context of a paper, right? That you, or a magazine or something that you're reading more, right? You're, and you're kind of forced to you, you know, I mean, you could just, you know, our people just they used to get the Sunday paper just to read the cartoons, right? But, you know, most people actually read the paper, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and so there, were, there was a broader contextualization of whatever they were getting in those cartoons, which I think that really ties into this question is that, you know, the clickbait culture, that contextualization, it, it's hit or miss and usually miss whether anyone ever gets any of it, you know, like it, it, the, the, the context is in the article, which people don't read. Yeah. You know? So what about this? Is there room for satire? I think so. Yeah, think, I think so think, too. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think, I think so um, in terms of my personal taste. But, you know, I guess right now, you mean, do you mean, you mean like culture right now? Is there room for satire? Mm -hmm. In general, yeah. Well, it definitely seems like people can't take jokes as easily. They take jokes more seriously, um, yeah. thus taking them out of the realm of being jokes. I mean, obviously, you can argue that someone could call something a joke that is actually just pure nastiness that's not actually funny. And that's totally fair. I think that seems to be what's happening is that the realm, the realm of comedy is, is, is up in the air. What is funny? What is not funny? That kind of goes in line with basically everything that's happening right now. Like, what are genders? What are re religions? What are our economies? What are our politicians? All these things are so up in the air, more so than they ever have been. I think uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, you talked talk about comedy. You know, I, refer, I heard him mention that it's the hardest time to be a comedian. And I've heard multiple comedians mention that now because they can't, they can, you know, there's limits or if they say something, it could be perceived wrong. And I'm wondering, so in our, in this whole like, like meme clip fake kind of society, we're, we're constantly entertained. You know, we have our phone and we're, you know, we got TikTok, it's 15, 30 seconds, and then we're on to the next one. And, you know, we got the gram, we're constantly scrolling, scrolling on Facebook and, and, you know, YouTube might. You know, YouTube video, if it's over five minutes, we want to turn it off. So we're almost, in essence, constantly being inundated with information. But a lot of times we're not filtering that information. We're just going on to the next thing. You know, here's a, here's a good example. I had a conversation with someone and they told me, oh, I heard, I heard X, Y, and Z, this doctor mentioned it. I said, oh, what doctor? I said, oh, they're on TikTok. I was like, what? Were they a real doctor? I said, uh, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, that was the conversation. It's like they had a white coat on, they you know, appeared that way. But I think that there, there's, a, there's a layer there too that in our culture that it has impacted also relationships, right? I mean, swipe right, swipe left, right? There's a quickness to it, microwaveness. So what do you guys think that, have you noticed an impact relationally as far as, memes clip bait culture you know swipe right left have you noticed any 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 aspects in the relationship realm like yeah, what it's doing to our know, psyche sorry yeah certainly yeah um 
it seems like the quality of relationships is continually deteriorating. At least that's what you can see from a bird's eye view. You know, when you really zoom into people's intimate lives, you know, you can't really tell. They could only tell you. But whether it's, you know, that what, what we see through our cultural bird's eye, i.e. the media, we just basically see large-scale deterioration of relationships. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it's now common for, you know, founders or co-founders of social media companies to be coming forward, giving interviews, making Netflix shows, basically telling people, you know, uh, something is happening. And I was part of a Facebook or Google, and we can see that what we've done, what we've launched into the world is having a huge uh, effect. So it, it seems like, you know, there's an, there's an element of overlap that I'm seeing between the quick dismissiveness that we see, that we constantly want to be entertained, and we're, we're looking at one thing and we're on to the next. And I think that that mentality has, has bled over, not entirely, but I think there is a bleed over into relationships as well. Yeah. So that this idea of like, hey, I want, if I want to hook up, I'm on Tinder and I swipe right or I swipe left or, you know, on whatever dating app there is out there. But I think that, that there's a, definitely a parallel that's going on there. Wes, yeah, well, it's like the... Uh, Alex, oh, go, go ahead, Wes. Go ahead. No, oh, okay. no, yeah. go <laughs> it was like the, uh, that quote, you, you know, before we jumped in that you told us, that quote, constantly entertaining each other. You know, that's, uh, that does seem to be a way to describe what's happening. Uh, you yeah. were talking about just a minute ago how mm -hmm. we don't really... Uh, digest information correct yeah you know you mean, so i mean i have that quote right here in my pocket i can read it yeah yeah please please <laughs> all right here <laughs> let me roll my sleeves off so this is a this is a neil postman he wrote this quote is coming out of his book called uh, it was entertaining ourselves or is amusing ourselves to death. amusing ourselves amusing ourselves to death, ourselves to death is is his book that he wrote and to set a backdrop so postman when he wrote this book it was, there are some political undertones uh, within the book. So, you know, with any writing, chew the meat, spit out the bones. I mean, he wrote it when Reagan came into office and he was questioning how in the world could a, you know, a celebrity become the president and, you know, an actor. And that was part of the undergirding of his writing. He has a quote in there. It reads like this. It says, Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not agree with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. So let's let's spin that. Let's 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 talk yeah, through that. Uh, you were talking about how uh, when we started the question about the clickbait, you know, headlines. You know, it's very common for people to just read headlines, and that headline is you know uh, just um, an eight-second impression basically an eight second intellectual emotional impression because they go for emotions now you know that is what basically drives the industry now you have the capital word capital word rage or like or or destroys you know so you have this eight second intellectual and emotional impression that enters a person's consciousness um but then that's that's the depth it goes at. So we're constantly being filled with more or less entertainment. You know, even our even what we consider to be our most serious topics have been reduced 
to entertainment at this point because of our lack of attention, a lack of uh, depth and profundity in thinking. Yeah, I think it's a great observation. It's interesting, you know, postman work, you know, I, I, love, I love because he, again, he's in the 80s writing about this and he's noticing it and the newscast how commercials are used to go between some weird, some deeply uh, troubling uh, piece of news, and and then there's a commercial, and 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 then it goes to some you know trivial piece of news, and they're all back and forth, and these commercials just kind of break up and and reduce your again your attention span, but even like it trivializes everything. There's nothing is more important than anything else, and so. I mean, I think what we see with the way social media works, it's that on steroids. And if y'all saw that, you know, kind of that documentary that became popular on Netflix over the summer, this, you know, you know, talking about uh, social networks and and how, you know, that's that they're designed to get you to, you know, have that emotional response just to click on something. They're just trying, you know, that basically you have become the product that the social media is selling, right? They're not, they're not, you know, you're not. They're not, they're not selling you what you act, the ads you see and the things you read, they're selling you to those companies and they know that you're going to click on them and follow them and all that, and all that good stuff. You've been reduced to, to a commodity itself. And so, but the way we use it, you know, because there's, you know, on one, in one post I'm reading today about a, a, a former coworker who passed away from cancer and, you know, and just the, the sadness of that and, you know, just seeing people at former coworkers grieving over that. And then that, you know, the next thing is some deeply charged political article. And the next thing is, you know, some picture of, you know, some memory from eight years ago. And it's like, it's taking all these very complex emotions and ideas and reducing them and mixing them all together. And, you know, you, you know, even though you have these, you know, eight, like you said, an eight second emotional response, that's it. You're done. You're moving on. Like, you know, the most deep and profound things have become less meaningful to you because, you know, they're, they're matched up with the most trivial thing right after it or some cat meme, you know, <laughs> after that. <you> know. <laughs> it, it, it does flatten things, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, it really it really does so that <clears throat> things are coming at you so quickly. I mean, you know, I can actually back to, you know, Alex, you, you made a point when, you know, when. If you know all of us are on our phones, probably constantly. All three of us probably in this call. I'm reading. I might be in the middle of reading, and I'm like, "Oh, I wonder what's going on on my phone." You know, I want to pick up my phone and put. I, I, I'm in the middle of reading for a class, and I still have this draw. And those, you know, the social media, the construct, the way that everything is constructed is to allure us and to rope us in further and further. And those ad advertisements. If you go to Google and you search one thing. You're on your your Instagram, and all of a sudden, that same thing is being advertised to you, and and it's you know very specific. It's pretty it's pretty wild. There is our, uh, our, our background mascot. noise. There's a mascot. <laughs> yeah. Our mascot is Gomez. Gomez. I was yeah. wondering what his name was. Yeah, he's well. We were going to get one called Morticia, but uh, <laughs> it was going to be a female. But we ended up with a male, and it uh, ended up being Gomez. So let me, uh, well, hopefully he stops, but let me keep on going here. So let me transition. We're going to talk about uh, critical, we're going to look a little more into like critical thinking and in this meme culture we have. And I want to read another quote by Postman and basically we can spin it around, discuss it. And he sets up 
two topics here. He talks about Alex Huxley's work, A Brave New World, where basically it's a utopian society and the government has made a construct so that the citizens are always happy. And anytime they have an emotion, they pop soma, they have no desire for reading and things of that nature. And they just sit around and yell orgy porgy, which is a big orgy um, all the time. So that's one side of a governmental structure. The other side is George Orwell's, or what we call, you know, what people have been calling a lot throughout Trump's presidency, Orwellianism, being in all the news lines. But he wrote a book called 1984, where that's more of an authoritarian dictatorship top down. So Postman contrasts both of these. And let me go ahead and read this, and then we can talk about it. So here we go. He says, contrary to common, be common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell do not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that they will be overcome by an externally imposed impression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. That Orwell feared were those who would, would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban books, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And he concludes by saying, this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. So there's some meat there. So let's, let's, let's kick that around. Maybe we could talk about the contrast of these two men and how it ties into our culture today and how we see this. Do we see do we see a more of an Orwellian or do we see this Huxley's view coming to fruition? Well, doesn't it seem like both, you know, almost like the two hemispheres of one brain? Mm. I see both. I see both, you know, not only in our country, but in the world, too. I see both styles. Can you name like different areas like in the West, uh, East or where, where are you seeing each style represented? Well, I think maybe the, the good example from history of the uh, Orwellian style would probably be the Chinese cultural revolu revolutions, right? Um, the, uh, the German cultural revolutions, the, uh, I, I know much less about, you know, the uh, Russian revolutions. Uh, I don't know much about Chinese revolutions either, but there was all book burnings, right? There was all, there was all the jackboot coming at your door, right? Uh, I, and I think Huxley's view, I think, you know, pertains very well to the West. You know, we, we enjoy, uh, we enjoy basically nonstop intoxicants, whether from drugs, alcohol, um, entertainment, um, everything is basically a form of soma. So it seems almost like an East kind of West, uh, it seems like there are both things, you know, maybe I wonder if he means that one will eventually lead to the other. Primarily for referring, referring to the Western culture in this, in this context. I don't know if he's necessarily saying it's leading. I think he's saying we are leading there that way towards more of a Huxley view as a whole. But I do agree. I do agree that we've seen that Orwellian perspective in, I think, more of an authoritarian dictatorship, like different governmental structures top down. But Wes has actually studied a good amount in the Chinese culture, haven't you, Wes? 
Uh, well, um, the or... 1930s in China. <laughs> okay, <laughs> specific, specific 19, time. Particularly 1927 to 1937 in okay. the Shandong province. No, um, <laughs> no. I mean, there, there's definitely. Um, yeah, I don't know if I want to speak necessarily to this point there. Um, um, I mean, you definitely have. You know, there's a lot of turmoil in China from the step the period where I studied the 1920s and 30s. There's the Communist Party is rising in power. The nationalists are trying to overcome Western oppression. I mean, it's it's very complex, very complicated. Um, there's there's probably going to be things that are legitimized by the the things that would normally be legitimized, but by Western imperial advance and things like that. But um, I mean, I, I mean, I think of this. You know, I mean, you mentioned like you know this idea of Orwellianism being mentioned in terms of Trump, and I think you kind of maybe see both things going on even there, right? I mean, because, you know, you know, this, this, this Huxley view, right? You're, you're basically, you're celebrating it. <laughs> you're, you're so, you're getting what you want. And so you, you let people do whatever, right? And so you see some of that where people were felt like they were getting power, prestige, influence, and you're willing to put up with just pretty much almost anything to have that, right? And they're getting it, they're getting fed, they have this maybe even a vision of, of getting more and more of that. And yet, at the same time, it, it's like, maybe the people who would even call that, because I don't, I just don't know whether I would classify what's going on with Trump as Orwellian, necessarily, right? I mean, there's things about it. That I think you look at, you look at 1984, you look at the Ministry of Truth, you look at this idea of, you know, the news being spun and changed to keep a status quo, right? And keep people from questioning how things should be, right? I definitely see that type of manipulation going on left and right, that spin. We saw it with this whole capital riot thing, you know, misinformation being used to its max to manipulate people, right? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, pushing the Orwellian. I was simply uh, using it as an illustration of what we've seen on the news headlines. Right. So. Yeah. But I think like, but, but to the point of the, the, the Huxley side of it, at the same time, like, like I, I, it's, it's very easy to point to the political party maybe we don't like as being Orwellian or the, or the you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's right. But one of the things I thought was that really stood out with Orwell and, you know, at the end when, you know, again, I can't even remember the main character's name at this point, but, you know, he's being tortured. He's been caught. He's been brought in. He's being tortured. And the whole idea uh, he comes to realize is that, you know, he's trying to hold on to some private truth in his mind. And of course, they, they don't want to allow that. Um, you have to have, there's an accepted truth. You have to, and then finally he comes to embrace it and love that truth. And that's really what they want you to do is to love that truth. And then, and in the end, that, that's the end of his life. He dies at the end, he gets killed. But like that idea of that, I think we see more of that going on though, right? It's the, especially with cancel culture, with the site, like, there's there's opinions that are accepted opinions right and if you love those opinions then you're all good but if you don't love like if you don't love them right even if you're willing to tolerate them but if you don't love them there could be a problem that's that's Orwellian it may not look like the dystopia that 1984 was but that's I feel like that's the part that I think is being swallowed because we are getting you know, maybe, maybe other things are better, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think what you're echo, what you're saying is that if the cultural narrative 
if we don't fit the cultural narrative, we do run a risk of being suppressed our, ourselves or, or, or rejected or canceled in, the, in that regard. Or, so, or re-educated, like the, the cultural revolution, things like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. But see, you know, what's, what's very intriguing to me is that the people that want to cancel or the people that proclaim one ideology over another, they're not on neutral ground. They're arguing from a position and for a position. And they're, and in my, you know, and kind of in opening this podcast is, is to be able to exchange ideas and have conversations, even if we disagree with things. Yeah. But that is an, a lost art today, as opposed to canceling your opponent is not discussing and dialoguing and loving your friend and sitting down and having dinner with them, even if you disagree. I think that's like real love right there. Like, like, you know, sit down, discuss something, disagree, and then go out and shoot pool afterwards or, <laughs> or whatever you're going to do, hang out and go play basketball. Um, <clears throat> but I think there's, I see both sides as well. Elements of, of Huxley. I think I, I see that more so than I do Orwellianism. I think a communist country would look at the West and say, you have no right to even claim Orwellianism. Um, you know, and, and I have friends that have that, that have left Ethiopia during really, really hard times where the military was heavy handed and they had to flee. I've met other people that have fled countries as well because of the suppression in the military. And they, they would kind of, I think they would, they'd be like, nah, the, the West hasn't met it yet. The West has not seen what we have seen. Um, so I think while we, while I think there's a degree, uh, we can say like elements of it that, you know, elements of, of it within cancel culture. Sure. But not, magnified to what it could be um so but i do definitely see both I but if the, you know if the wheels are in motion then it could get there right yeah, no that's true alex it could, i mean it could obviously stop the wheels could stop metaphorically as well yeah. but you know the motion is there well you know that brings us into uh we're gonna let's shift gears and look at talking about kind of how the motion of things going in our society like how we see the trajectory moving. What about education? Because right now, we, I would like to recognize kind of like the positive and negative it, within our education realm, because we talked about memes, right? Like this entertainment, constantly being entertained. We moved into looking at how Orwell and Huxley and the different, in the way this trickles down in the society, but also the area of education, I think it's touched as well. I mean, there's, there's a big movement going on right now I just recently read getting rid of specific classical works and in literature and writings because they contain things like they contain things like racism or maybe maybe rape or they aren't reflective like this, you know, one certain certain works have elements of, of ideas that aren't that aren't great with our modern culture. So let's kick that out around. Uh, maybe we could talk about that for a little bit. What are some positives and negatives in that? Yeah, a lot of going on there. Yeah, I just had a, I just had a, a really interesting interaction um, interviewing for a substitute teaching at high school. And I had the interview with the assistant principal, and he's this really, you know, warm, gregarious guy. You know, you know, extrovert through and through. You could just tell even from first meeting. I like that energy, you know. And so when uh, we were having the interview, it was only like five minutes, but I just kind of asked him at one point. I was like, where, where do you see this going? You know, you personally, and like, 
almost saying like, let's talk first in the first because I'm interested, you know? And he just, you know, like he was waiting for someone to ask almost. He was like, you want to know? I'm scared. I'm scared for these kids. I'm scared what's happening for the development base. You know, he, he said, you know, things that already kind of started have already changed a lot. I mean, these kids basically, you know, run the shows themselves. Like Google Classroom is built into school now. You know, kids can access their own materials. They all have their own MacBook. Um, they know how to work it better than the teachers. And uh, a lot has already changed, that's what he said. But now he said with, um, with this lockdown, which of course could end at any point, things might go back to normal, how they were. But he was uh, really afraid for their development. You know, he was saying schools are basically already completely changed to how most of us think of them and grew up. And now if these procedures stay in place, you know, if, you know, people like them better, if they're, you know, they've come to like these procedures of walking single file and hand sanitizing, stuff like that, if they like them better, it's going to keep going that way. And uh, he said that he was heartbroken. He was like, uh, these kids, some of them might be doing just as good as they were, he was saying. Uh, maybe even a couple are getting ahead. They're really savvy. But he, it was his opinion that most kids are seeing a downturn. And some are even going for the worst. You know, childhood suicides are spiked, you know. So in terms of just schools for, you know, for children, is a huge issue right now on the horizon. Huge. And it, it's, it's not just because of the, the lockdowns and COVID, but it's only made it worse. You got on that one, Wes. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've seen that. I mean, just to you know, echo that. I mean, I've seen that in my kids. You know, that you know, my kids are been between home and at school, and, and like being at school is like a prison. So how, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it is, and 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 the teachers, uh, at least in our, in our locality, they they're doing so. Like their parents had a choice whether to send their kids back or not. You know, so. Um, the teachers got to teach both, you know, but the ones that are there, they're in like a prison. Um, <laughs> so if that were to stick around, that would be problematic. But one of the things that really, and it kind of even to come to this question, because there's some big things discussed in education, like, for instance, whether it's even legitimate to study the great books or not, there's the, that's the big, you know, is it, is it West, is it pro, too pro-Western, right? Is it imperial by nature? You know, and that's a huge question, I think, that people have opinions on but that's I think that's behind a lot of the fact that you know that certain things are not being taught anymore right there's that view but like you know so my daughter was in uh was it sixth grade or fifth grade I think and they had to read a fable uh an Aesop's fable and they um they had a worksheet they had to fill out and then part of the they had to like find discrimination in this Aesop's fable right and uh, and the fable in particular was uh, about, you know, a young girl who sees her parents who don't want to take care of their elderly parents because it would have been a burden. And then when they get older, she doesn't want to take care of them for that because that's what they that's what she saw growing up. And you could probably, you know, but, you know, yeah, there's that's, there's a moral being taught there about caring for your family, right? But is that an ageism? Is that teaching age? You know, reading back into these texts, some of these modern conceptions, and you know that style of learning and that coming to books and coming to literature and coming to ideas, trying to read back into it these modern ideologies. 
that's problematic. And because there is such a thing as discrimination and there is such things as ageism and sexism and all those things. And, and they're so important that we shouldn't be trying to trivialize them by trying to find them in places they're not. Because what, what you end up doing is you teach a kid not how to read a text and understand it, but to find a preconceived idea. And so when they actually do see the real thing, are they even going to be able to recognize it? Are they going to be able to have the discernment to actually deal with what it means to be human and what it means uh, to be moral and ethical and, and all those types of things that they, they're not, they can't get there because they have a, you have this idea of discrimination that was forced upon you and you didn't actually grow into, you know? Yeah. So Wes, I think you bring up a really valid point. So when, when it comes to reading or, or learning anything, right, an author writes, they, they're, they're communicating to us. They want to communicate an idea to us. So us as the readers, as we read, we should not read to import our ideas on top of what the author has written, but we need to understand what is the author's original intent behind the text. What does he, what does he want to communicate to us? Yeah. And, let, you know, and then, then we extrapolate out what or, or he's she, saying. Or she, just, he or she, way. yeah, exactly. Um, so, but sorry. Yeah, but no, no, no problem. No problem. Um, but if uh, there's enough in history, I think, like we we're talking about, you know, you, you say like, like oppression, you can read books and the oppression is so plain and so clear. You don't even have to, you don't have to search for it. It, it should be smacking you in the face on a lot of these, right. on a lot of the material. So, I mean, just for, for instance, we just went through Plato's Republic, right? And we were hit with what is the idea of justice? We're hit with the idea of eugenics, Eugenics, you know, we're hit with the idea of what's the best society, uh, the idea of killing the young. And, and all those are plain. We didn't have to read that into the text. And then you have to wrestle with those ideas. And I think that is part of the benefit of good literature is that good literature has that throughout its throughout the works. And it forces you to think critically, to wrestle around with with this author and, uh, you know, you, you know, the phrase, uh, if you get into it's like if, if you read a that, if you read 100 books, you know, you live the lives of 100 people because you get to see it from such a different vantage point, different time in history, different way of looking at the world. And I think that that's also important is to help people not only understand what the author's writing, but help the, the reader understand the worldview of that author and how they perceive the entire world and why are they looking at it the way they're looking at it. Because once you understand the way they look at the world, you begin to comprehend within that structure on why they're writing the way they're writing. And that I think is what is, that's an, a big element that I think is, is missing in public education. I have a lot of friends who are in public education and I love what they do. And a lot of them think just like what I just said, and they help to that end. They're trying to, but not all are. So what are, uh, what are some uh, things that you guys have studied that have helped you think and to just like develop critical thinking skills? Well, right, right before I move on to that, I just want to say, mm -hmm. you know, to what you said, Mike, and, and, and on, on top of Wes's point about finding a preconceived idea, I thought that was really well put. Like, that's not thinking for yourself. If what you're doing is analyzing a text through the lens of someone else's idea. That's not actually thinking, that is something else. 
you know, that is not what we want. That's not critical, right? Yeah. So we're, you know, I don't get this whole, I don't get this whole thing of, you know, we're trying to like, we're trying to find uh, in our culture what's actually true. But meanwhile, we have this, this battle of people trying to just impose their ideas on other books. And if that can't work out, they're just going to burn them. Mm. They're just going to, they're just going to burn them. You know, that's not what, that's not, that's not reasonable. That's not responsible. That's, that's not, you're not going to be able to think, you know, it's just amazing that we're trying, we we think of ourselves as free people, you know, free, free thinkers. We think of ourselves as so civilized, but you know, we don't even understand what it means to think for ourselves. We can't even read a book without imposing some sort of theory on top of it from somewhere else. No, I think another layer to it is if, if we push down the road of, let's say, ripping out uh, some of the great works that, that have something grossly, as gross, grossly embedded racism, well, I think we do a disjustice to the upcoming learner that hasn't had an opportunity to actually read the firsthand source of what it actually looked like. Like the idea behind it is, all right, we want to get rid of this stuff so people aren't inundated with, with these racist ideas. However, the best way for them to understand the grossness of the racist idea is allow them to read it. And the books are going to speak to themselves. I mean, you're going to be, you know, that's the, the disgusting writings that I've read historically have helped, have helped me understand better, like what was going on during that time. I remember when, uh, when I read, uh, Narrative of Life of Frederick Douglass, you know, based in Maryland, where I live, and reading some of that stuff was it was just disgusting. It was it, it just like was gut wrenching to hear about you know some of the some of these slave owners that were super that were abusive, and someone got shot, and you know they under and they covered it up, and so I think those writings are also important as well. That we have this great books of the Western world, but I think we also need to inject other things like. Like, you know, jump out there with um, the art of war, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, um, you know, the the narrative of life of Douglas, you know, Frederick Douglas, like all those, I think the other East and West, all of it to round it out. I think all of it helps. So, Wes, what do you what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, several good things there. Yeah, definitely finding a way to not make it so, you know, like occidental, right? <laughs> and, they, you know. Definitely broadening the the history ideas to include those other uh, cultures because even if I mean the great books are presented as a great conversation right and that we're all like there's a progression to it people are responding and dealing with what came before them and and there is a sense where you know there's not a lot of interaction with Eastern thought in there directly you know but there was definitely interactions between East and Western cultures, um, even if it just on economics or in terms of militarily, you know, so there's a need to understand that and get that broader context. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I'm definitely with you on that, but it, it's just kind of funny that, you know, when you pull out, I mean, if you were to pick up and read, you know, you know, Montaigne's essays, right. And his, the way he describes Africans, right. And the, and you get an understanding of how, some you know europeans really didn't understand who this other people were they really looked down upon them and you know but yeah i mean if we were to read that today and you, and if you were to say well this is some great book and someone might 
think, oh, well, they were, well, racism is great and Africans or whatever, you know, no, if you understand the context of it, what's going on, you know, it, give, it, it does, you know, it does help you to prevent you from kind of oversimplifying um, an understanding of, of history, right? You know, it's very easy to reduce things like the Crusades or like the transatlantic slave trade and, and on some of the horrific things that went on in Western history, easy to reduce them to something simple, even if even like, you know, all oh, this is all oh, just religion or, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever it may be. Uh, but it's much more complex than that. I mean, there really is other things going on and and really all flowing within this great conversation, you know. Yeah. You think of even like, you know, was Galileo, was the issues with Galileo a religion versus science thing? Or was it more, you know, that the, that the powers that be have, had accepted uh, an Aristotelian view of the universe and Galileo was challenging that, you know? So, you know, there's a lot of complexity that can be ignored by removing these, these books from the conversation. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, we're talking about things that are time tested and people have gone back to time and time again. And to begin a conversation, to have to help people think critically and rationally. So we began with the memes, right, and in our culture today. And we're kind of landing in, in the great books and, and we're pushing the idea of reading critically studying hard, looking, looking to the past, you know, so, you know, in essence, we stand on shoulders of giants, right? You know, we're, we're living the lives of a hundred people as we read. So what are, what other benefits do you guys think? And we'll kind of land this plane, just toss it out. What are some benefits? If I push back and say, look, man, I can just see this stuff through a movie. I can, uh, you know, I, I could just watch a movie and get the same gist of that. Why would I even bother doing what you guys are saying that just sounds like hard work you know i've i've got the game to watch on sunday i don't want to what do i want to read plato for that just sounds so lame i mean or or whomever well yeah you know if you if you can read if you if you can connect with the past and the only way to do that is with books or preserved art you know and that could even be architecture if you want to connect with humans you want to, if you want to be an anthropologist, be a real human, someone who just studies humans, who loves people, mm -hmm. uh, you have to read. You have to, if, if your love is big enough for humans, you will eventually start reading books from the past and you will go to the, typically you'll go to the most famous ones because that's, you know, that, that they're, they're there, you know, and they're obvious. I mean, that, that's, that's why you read, right? You read because you love humans, you love people. And uh, kind of just to go back, not to go back fully, but to bring in what we were just talking about too, you know, you got, I like what you said about the Bhagavad Gita. I love the Bhagavad Gita. I love Eastern literature. Actually, my intro, even though I'm in St. John's and we read a lot of Western stuff, you know, my real introduction to higher learning was through Eastern philosophy. And um, you need to read that stuff. You know, you really need to read that stuff. Um, you, because when you do, you can see the Bhagavad Gita in, Heraclitus. You can see Buddhism in Plato. You can see it's there. If you read that stuff, you can see it. People will deny it if they haven't read it. They like to think that the Western world was completely cut off from the Eastern world as if there was no love for each other and learning. There was a huge love for each other and there was huge learning. And you can see that in the text if you actually read. Um, people like to play this game East versus West where it's really one large 
current of human understanding. You have you have to read, you know, you have to read um, East and West. You have to read, like you said, the Bhagavad Gita, read um, the Tao Te Ching, read um, Confucius, read any of the great books from that era. You will see it in the Western books, too. A lot of the Western thinkers learned from the Eastern thinkers. Yeah. Not all of them, but a, but a lot of the, I mean, most of the great ones, I'll say most of the great ones did. Most of the great Western thinkers knew about Eastern thinking, even if Eastern means maybe Middle Eastern or even Egyptian, but also Chinese, Indian. Um, they knew that stuff. We just don't think that they do. They, they, they did. I've certainly read a myriad of old, especially theologians who, who clearly could articulate pantheism panentheism uh you know all all polytheism you know different worldviews no problem at the, off the tip of their tongue they could rattle it off in their writings so i think uh understanding reading widely will help not only help us i think it helps us like in our meme culture because we look at soundbite stuff but i think it helps us think critically when we see those things like we realize that these are reductionistic by nature and that there's probably more to the story when we when we're skimming and you know swiping up and down on our phones, so Wes, you want to throw out something there? We'll uh, we'll try to land this plane. It's been yeah. a really good conversation, guys. Yeah, it's been awesome. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you yeah, need to read, but broadly, most east and west. I really like. I mean, I mean, some of the and I know we maybe heading towards this and getting, but in terms of people, you know, thinking through, you know, who's who to be reading and where to start and things like that. I, it made me think of um, when I was saying of, of Peter Peter Kreeft or Peter Kreft, I don't, you know, how, how you say his, his last name, but, you know, you read Pascal really through him, his work on Pascal is, you know, probably, you know, where you would uh, start there, but he also wrote a book on heaven, which he interacts, like the, his whole book is just interaction with the Bhagavad Gita <laughs> and, the, and the Vedas. It's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty interesting uh, read you know, on that. It just made me think of that, but um yeah, I, actually, I'm actually really interested in, you know, one of the things that, you know, Alex, you mentioned is you kind of went on this study on your own, right? I mean, what really led you, like, and where did you start, like, when you, you wanted to, to know more uh, in this area? Yeah, first, um, I actually honestly didn't really even read books until undergraduate. Um, I was more, my, uh, my development was starting other places. For example, um, when I was much younger, I was really attracted to to Eastern martial arts. And there's so much philosophy just in there. Just, and I could see that I, it attracted me to it. And um, I didn't read any books about it then really until uh, late high school. That's my first, I think my first book I really picked up of higher learning was the Bhagavad Gita. I think I picked that up when I was 17 or 18. So I started more through, you know, non-literary sources i also played music a lot i would listen to a lot of music i would listen to world music as well as rock and roll you know in high school so i started actually not with books i eventually started reading books in college it just something just clicked and i just kind of went off from there so yeah i started i definitely started my my learning i think with the east to be honest you know in almost in a illiterate spiritual way almost and it's only by going in that direction, looking back, that I was able to start learning about the West, and particularly Christianity too. I was raised raised in a in a Greek Orthodox setting. It wasn't very very strict, but you know I had that growing up, and uh, 
I couldn't even really understand that until I took studies of of the East, and then I could come back and I can actually approach approach the uh, the Western forms of learning. I'm not sure that was just my personal journey, but somehow that's that's how it happened. I couldn't, I didn't like Plato. I didn't like Socrates. I wasn't a fan of Christianity, how it was portrayed in the general culture. You know, I I didn't feel for that. I think maybe I saw a lot of materialism in the West. And I think as a young person, I saw a kind of a, a lack of materialism in a lot of Eastern philosophy. So I think I went there first and it's only by going there first, I could come back to the West into its various religions and philosophies and even its materialist philosophies. And I can understand them that way. That's, that's how I came here. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of wild. We all have, you know, different journeys on how we kind of landed. I mean, I mean, honestly, as I was a kid, I, I, I didn't, I could care less about school and education and learning. I just wanted to have fun. I was an, ex- I was just a, you know, a, an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> Give me all the extreme sports I can get and let me, let me be wild and party. And, you know, that was me. I mean, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, picking up and reading was the furthest thing from my mind until like early twenties. And, and then I just got enamored with stuff and just like, wait a minute, just started reading immensely then kind of similar to you a little bit later on in life. And, and bouncing from different books across the, you know, the spectrum, because I'm always interested. I'm always just, I'm just so intrigued to know, you know, why people believe what they believe. And sometimes the best way to understand that is to, is to interact with the text that, that they say they, you know, embrace like, Hey, this is my favorite text. Well, I'd go off and read it. Let me ask this. I'll toss it out and we'll kind of land this plane. What's one of your top favorite books, or maybe not even your top favorite book. What's a good book that you would recommend someone to start with? And we'll just say audiobooks because everybody likes audiobooks, right? <laughs> LibriVox is free. What's a good starting book that you say, okay, I've often heard if you read, you know, try to read for every new book. Most people always want to read new, read at least one old book. Start there. What's an old ish book you would say, hey, check this out. This would intrigue you. Yeah, that's a great question because uh, it, it, it actually made me think of Alex, what you were just saying, how you came to things through the East. I think it would depend on the knowledge of that person, right? Yeah. Because sure. I think there's many entry points, right? People who like philosophy, right? I would probably, I mean, if you like philosophy already, I mean, jump in with Plato, man. Read read the Republic or maybe, you know, one of his other, you know, dialogues or whatever. But mm-hmm. there's other people, I think, you know, there's all sorts of great literature. I mean, the, you know, novels that, that show up, you know, I, I love Dostoevsky. I think it's a, you know, a great starting point but other people may be poetically minded i'd say you know dante you know i mean i think there's multiple entry points for getting started yeah you know jordan peterson i think has repopularized dostoevsky he loves him i mean he loves him yeah you know peterson loves him einstein said he can learn from him nietzsche said he can learn from him i mean he he has an acute sense of human psychology and you can really learn a lot, you know, just yeah. the way he develops his characters and their thoughts. And you almost can kind of feel it a little bit, the weight of it. So he's a he's a good one for novelist. I think I really think the life, the narrative of life of Frederick Douglass mm. is a great book, like especially if somebody, you know, wants to get that insight, firsthand insight. I was taken back the first time I read it and it's really thin. It's really easy to get into. That's a good one, I, I think. Yeah, I, I like what you said, Wes. That's definitely true. That's that's how I 
I view it as well. You know, you really gotta, you know, if we could have everyone here and we could know who they were, we could give them prescriptions. Uh, but um, in general, actually, I would say, okay, let's let's just say we're talking to, let's say we're talking to a Western audience, and we're let's say we're talking to people who really want to uh, uh, maybe absorb as much as as much of the literary motifs cultural motifs of Western society, I would say start with the King James Bible, not because I think I think that's uh, necessarily the highest work or that people should appreciate Christianity as a as a faith. But if you are interested, if you are a Western person and you're interested in understanding your culture, I would say to heavily scrutinize the Bible, particularly the King James Bible, because so many just phrases have entered our culture from the King James Bible. They don't even have a Christian connotation anymore. I will add a caveat to that, which is the more you adore Christianity, if you already do, or if you find yourself adoring it, if you start reading the Bible, I would then encourage you to read as many non-Christian works as you possibly can, like the great works of the East, like the Bhagavad Gita or the Dhammapada. I would recommend that. So I would say start with the King James Bible just for the pure literary resource and the amount of um, motifs you can find in there. And then go to the East after that too, especially if you really love the Bible. It's kind of funny as I was spinning this around, I didn't even think uh, <laughs> about saying, hey, start, start in the book of Genesis. You know, you want to, you want to hear the, the creation account. You know, and especially in a Western world, if you really want to understand elements of, of like the founding fathers, the Puritans, jump into the book of Romans, you know, things like that. I mean, that's going to really lay that out. But man, good, good conversation, guys. This was this was really rich. I'm hoping I, that the audience will appreciate it and, and enjoy it. And I definitely uh, like to have you on, Alex. I think we're going to we'll have to do this again. That's yeah, please. Sure. This was a this was a pleasure. Uh, anytime, just uh, call me up. All right, man. Yeah, definitely. And Wes, thank you once again. And for our listening audience, this is Mike Parks, your host. I'm signing off on Intersecting Ideas. Go ahead and give us a, a like and a follow on uh, Facebook, Instagram. We're on Google Podcast now. We're on Amazon Music, and all we're getting spread across the web. So thanks for joining.